build the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless you watch over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Lord, and unless you come and speak to us today, we are just hearing the babbling talk of a foolish man, which we can find on any TED Talk on YouTube. God, we need you. We need you to come and work in our hearts and in our lives. We need you to work in the lives of those around us in this city. And God, we cry out for you to have mercy. We ask that you would come and confront people in their unbelief. Show them Christ. Show them that they might believe in him and be saved. And show us Christ this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. The question I have in light of what we've been talking about with belief and singing about and what I just prayed. Why don't people believe? Why don't people believe, especially when the evidence appears to be so overwhelming? You may have asked this question before. You may have wrestled with this topic in your own life. Just this morning, I was listening to uh, The Corner Room, which uh, they've done uh, some singing of psalms uh, directly out of the ESV, which is a great way to, to listen to the psalms and to memorize them as you, as you listen along. And Psalm 42 came on. Now, you might be familiar with Psalm 42 because it's on every coffee mug in every Christian home, and it's not every, it's on a coffee mug in every Christian home, and it's probably hanging on your wall somewhere in a picture. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And we sit there happily and sip our coffee, not realizing what this psalm is actually talking about. The psalmist goes on, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? He goes on, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. As a new convert in college who was really excited about Jesus, who Jesus is and what the Bible had to say, I wrestled deeply with these things. Why don't people believe? Why do those around me who I'm talking with say, yeah, where is your God? We've heard all the objections, haven't we? There's not enough evidence. I want to see some miracles. The Bible has been corrupted. And on and on it goes. Essentially, there's this prove it, right? Prove it to me mentality. And again, if you've tried to share your faith, you have encountered this, no doubt. And scripture, as we saw in Psalm 42, this is not something new to the people of God. It's not some new phenomenon where people around us are saying, where's your God, right? Prove it to me. This is all throughout scripture. And it addresses it in many places and in many ways. And this passage in John chapter 5 really gets at the heart of this issue. 
Last week in verses 30 to 38, we saw Jesus telling the Jews how the Father, his Father witnesses about him. John the Baptist had witnessed about him. The works that the Father gave him to do witnessed about him. And yet, they still refused to believe. Jesus is essentially saying to them, the evidence is right in front of you. The problem is not with the evidence. It's with you. It's with your unwillingness to believe what is true, to believe the evidence. It was two weeks ago, sorry. It was two weeks ago. James preached last week. Two weeks ago, uh, we saw this. Uh, We looked at an overview of where we've been and where we're going here with John's gospel and the I am statements. We looked at an overall, the overall context of John's gospel. Uh, If you weren't here two weeks ago, I'd encourage you to listen uh, to that if you want to kind of get caught up to speed with where we're going with these I am statements and how all these things fit together in in these two messages. Uh, There's a lot of overlap here. But I gave us a caution and a warning. And this is... For all of us, uh, it's, a, it's a dual caution. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to repeat the exact same thing I said two weeks ago. Because I think it is really important to be reminded of. We need to be careful when we read the Bible that we don't read ourselves into the story too much. We're looking here at a unique historical setting in the Gospels. We're looking at the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, by these religious leaders... And a lot of this is happening in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And if you look around, we're not first century Jews, okay? So we can't read ourselves into the story too much. But the flip side of that, the other caution, is we need to be careful not to read ourselves out of the story either. We can't say, well, what Jesus is saying here just applies to those first century Jews who physically rejected him in the flesh, who physically said, oh, we have the Old Testament and we're just not believing it. That's, and we can't sit here and say, that's not us, so this doesn't apply to us. There's no getting off the hook here. Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. He is constantly confronting sinners in their unbelief, And when his word is read and preached and communicated to sinners today, 2,000 years later, the same challenge applies to us as we sit here this morning. Jesus' most challenging question in all of the Gospels is, who do you say that I am? And every single one of us needs to answer that question. Let's go to the text. We're going to... do verses 37 and 38 again. We looked at those last time, but we're going to start in verse 37 and read through verse 47. Hear the word of our Lord. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, 
Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of our Lord. Well, if you're taking notes and you have the insert there, the main idea is printed there on that insert. The main idea for this morning is that Jesus confronts all of us in our unbelief, yet he does not leave us there. He has clearly revealed himself and what it means to believe in him through the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. So we want to look at how. How has Jesus done that? How does he confront us in our unbelief? And we're going to be looking at And we're going to be answering that by looking specifically at three accusations that he makes. We're going to mainly look at it of how it applies directly to his original audience, but we're also going to see how it applies to us. The first accusation that he makes is that they refused to come to him that they might have life. We went back to verse 37 uh, because... Jesus points to his father's witness about him, and he ties that witness specifically to the word of God. Notice what he says in verse 38. He says, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus is saying to these Jews and religious leaders, your failure to believe in me proves that you don't really believe or understand the scriptures. Which is exactly what he's going to drive home here, beginning in verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures. This word here for search is not like kind of just rummaging around blindly. It's diligently seeking, pouring over, diligently going through the scriptures. This is not some half-hearted approach to religion. And this is a commendable practice. This is something good that they were searching the scriptures And then he says, because you think that in them you have eternal life. Again, this is a good thing. It's good for them to think that the key to eternal life, that they could find out who God was from his revealed will in his word, that is a good thing. But Jesus then drops this bomb on them. He says, and or yet or but, it is they that bear witness about me. This is the fourth of the four witnesses that we've seen here. We see the Father's witness. We see John the Baptist's witness. We see the witness of Jesus' works. Now we come to the scriptures. It's the fourth witness, and it's ultimately, I think, in the argument that Jesus is going to make here, this is the most accusatory witness against them. Jesus is saying, on the one hand, good job searching the scriptures for eternal life. That's good. And this is a universal experience. This is something that is hardwired into all of us, searching for eternal life. I have people ask me often, why are there so many religions in the world? Why should I believe in Christianity? Why should I believe in Jesus? And I have a, I have a really long answer to that that I'm not going to give. If you are interested, I'd like to talk to you about that. But I'll give you, the shor- I'll give you a short answer from Scripture. I think it's basically Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1 that what can be known about God is plain because he has shown it to us. He has shown it to us first in creation through general revelation. So nobody 
can have an excuse for not believing in him. Everyone has enough evidence, knows that there is a God. But what happens is we create man-made ways, we create man-made systems to try to get to God and to try to know him. I saw this evidenced uh, when we were in China. We were there in 2003 and 2004, kind of our first, our first lengthy time there. Uh, we were working with college students, and we were on campus. We, I remember exactly where we were. We were on, on the soccer field. We were teaching a bunch of Chinese students how to play American football. And I started talking to this guy named Michael, and we just started engaging in conversations. He's like, yeah, I really want to read the Bible. And so I started engaging with him, and as we sat down later on and started meeting, he, he said, I know there's a God. I've, just, I've always known since I was a child that there's, there's something more out there and that there's a God out there. And it was undeniable. He, he knew that God existed, but he had no idea who this God was or how he could know him. And it took us months, like I think it was like six months before he finally became a Christian of just continually sharing the gospel with him and, and pouring over scripture until God revealed himself to him. He needed that special revelation, right? He needed to go beyond the general revelation of just saying, I know there's a God, to being confronted by his word and putting his trust in him. And the Jews had that special revelation. They had the revelation from God of who he was. And Jesus' accusation here in verse 40 speaks to that. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life you refuse to come to me. It's an interesting translation choice here in the ESV of this word, refuse. We've actually seen this word already in this same passage. We saw it two weeks ago in verse 35 when it's talking about John the Baptist. It says, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. That word there is that you were willing is what's used negatively here. You were willing to rejoice in John the Baptist's light, but you are not willing to come to me. So Jesus uses this language to make a deliberate contrast of you're willing to, to go and listen to this man, but here I stand before you, the very Son of God, and you refuse to listen to me. You refuse to come to me that you may have life, the very thing you're searching for. And I'm right here, and you're denying me, and you're not willing to come to me. So in other words, he's saying, all of the evidence points to me, yet you won't come to me. This points us back to something that James talked about a lot last week in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So what is the problem? The problem is that they won't come to him for life because they can't. They're not able to come to him for life because they are dead in their sin. Their will is contrary to God's will. They are doing their own will. Their own will is to follow their own ways and not to follow God. So they will not come to Jesus. And we use words like blinded by sin or held captive by sin. That is what Jesus is exposing here. It's their unwillingness and their inability to believe savingly in him. So you'd think now Jesus would say, okay, you know, I've, been, I've, I've accused you, I've been hard enough on you. But he doesn't let up. It's not enough for him just to point this out. 
he's going to drill deeper. And this is a gracious and merciful drilling that he does here that will further accuse and further expose what is really going on in their hearts. And we need this same kind of drilling in our own hearts, don't we? We need to let the Lord drill down deep into us and expose the things that we are trusting in instead of him. The second accusation is found in verse 44. In verse 43, Jesus says that he has come in his Father's name, which is kind of similar to what he said back in verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name. My Father is sending me. My Father is testifying about me. And then he says, um, but you, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. So again, it's this and or yet or but, you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And in light of that unwillingness to receive Jesus, the one whom the Father has sent, he then drops this crushing rhetorical question on them in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? The answer is obvious. You can't. He's not dialoguing with them here. The how can you is saying you can't, right? We can read it that way. You can't believe in me when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. You can't believe in me, one, because you're not willing, and two, you're not able because you're seeking glory for yourselves and from among yourselves. Remember who he's talking to here. Remember the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures to which he points. What happened to people who sought glory for themselves? I can think of at least one very striking example. In Daniel chapter 4, you might be familiar with the story, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's walking on the roof of his palace, overlooking the earthly kingdom that he has built. And he says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. The very next verse says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, hello, He's bragging about how awesome he is and about his majesty. And God comes and interrupts him in the middle of his speech. There fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Listen to this. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Mic drop, right? Well, let's read ourselves into this text, into both of these texts for a little bit. You don't need to be a mighty king over a mighty empire to know the temptation to boast about the glory of your own majesty. Might be a little more subtle than King Nebuchadnezzar. But we're all attempting to build our own empires and to establish our own reputations to get glory from other people. 
don't think I feel that temptation every Sunday after I come up here and preach, right? And I mingle and interact. Oh, I hope they like the sermon, right? I hope, they, I hope they say, oh, you must have worked really hard on that this week. Or students in the classroom seeking the praise of your professors or the praise from your peers, wanting to do well in your classes. Or people in the workplace, right? You want your coworkers to say, hey, great job. You're really, you're really killing it. Or stay-at-home moms. You want to hear, that was really delicious, mom. Or thanks for cleaning the house, honey. That must have taken a lot of time and energy with a small army hanging on you all day long. I'm talking about myself there. We must let Jesus' words in John 5 penetrate our own hearts and search our own motives. How can we believe when we receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? We can't. We can't. Which brings us to Jesus' third and final accusation, which is stunning in how he lays it out. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. So in the middle of all these accusations, Jesus is saying, it's actually not me who's accusing you, right? There is one who accuses you. It's Moses on whom you have set your hope. What does he mean here? What does he mean that they have set their hope on Moses? Is he saying that they shouldn't be hoping in what Moses said? Is he saying they shouldn't be hoping in God's word that was revealed to them in the Old Testament? No, not at all. But he's saying that their hope is misplaced. It wasn't true belief. We see that in verses 46 and 47. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses himself, one of the greatest messianic promises in the Old Testament, Moses himself said in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Okay? He wasn't talking about prophets that were going to come after him in the Old Testament. He was talking about Jesus. Okay? There's no doubt about that. He's talking about one who will come. And he's saying that they should listen to him. Moses never pointed to himself. So for the Jews to hope in Moses was pointless. That was never the point to hope in Moses. It was to hope in the one to whom Moses pointed, to the long-awaited Messiah. That was the way that God had set it up from the beginning. So the accusation here in verse 47 is really a massive blow to those who diligently search the scriptures in hopes of eternal life. Jesus says to them, you've missed it. You're not really believing in Moses' writings, and therefore you can't believe in me. And Jesus never changed his tune on this topic. This obviously occurred earlier on in his ministry, but he didn't stop banging this drum all the way until the end. In Luke 24, after his resurrection, he's walking on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples. They're discussing his death and the claims of the women who found the empty tomb. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? He doesn't say, hey friends, how's it going? 
Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. To believe what? To believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then you know what Jesus did? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that is the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus' whole ministry was about pointing to how the Old Testament pointed to him. And we're going to see that in these I am statements. After this encounter, he appears to the disciples and he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, again, the whole Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So we said that Jesus confronts all of us in our unbelief, and we looked at that, how he did that, yet he does not leave us there. He has clearly revealed himself and what it means to believe in him through the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And that's what this whole encounter in John chapter 5, and again, the I am statements, that is what it's all about. Remember what John's purpose statement in his gospel is, comes at the end of of John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things, the whole entire account of Jesus' life and ministry, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay? That believing and having life, those are the things that we just saw in this passage. So John's Gospel, he tells us, And the whole Old Testament that Jesus tells us here were written so that we may believe and have life. But, we've got a problem, right? We are just like the Jews who were unwilling to come. We received glory from one another rather than from God. And we do not believe the testimony of Moses, the whole Old Testament, and therefore we do not believe in Jesus. Unless, unless Jesus opens our minds to understand the scriptures, just as he did with his disciples. And he has, hasn't he? Hallelujah. If you're here today and you're a Christian and you trust in him, I promise you it's not because you were better behaved or smarter or better looking than your neighbors or those in your family who don't trust in him. John has actually already told us earlier on in his gospel account how this happens in two places previously. In John chapter 1, he describes how Jesus came into the world as the light of the world. He says he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Okay, That's the context of what's going on in John chapter 5. His own people are not receiving him. But you know what the next verse says? This is a great word of hope and promise for us. The next verse says, But to all who did, what? Receive him who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God who were born, what? In influential families with a bunch of good works credited to their their accounts? 
No, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's a supernatural birth. This is what Jesus talks to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3 when he's telling, them that he, telling him that he must be born again. He must receive, we must receive and believe in Jesus by faith. It's not just simply praying some prayer and asking Jesus into your heart. It's more than that. And I don't say it's more than that because it's complicated. I'm not trying to put hurdles in our way. I'm not saying, well, you, got, you, can, you can have this simple faith in Jesus, but you really got to do all these other things first. But it's not simplistic either. It's not just pray a prayer, punch your ticket, and then peace out. It's just all easy from there. We read chapter 14 earlier from the confession. You can look at it again if you want. First section there says that our ability to believe to the saving of our souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in our hearts. God must do it. And it's ordinarily worked by the ministry of the word, preaching and teaching, and is increased and strengthened by the administration of the sacraments. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a minute. And prayer. So our faith can grow and be strengthened. The second section there says that by faith a Christian will believe to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word because it is the authority of God himself speaking in his word. Then he gives that very clear definition of saving faith. The principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Simply put, we believe that Jesus died on the cross in our place as our substitute for our sin, that he rose again from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, and that he is coming back again. We accept, we receive, and we rest upon that, the simple good news of the gospel, and not on our own merits or anything that we have done. But then again, we don't just coast on to heaven as if living the Christian life is some easygoing joyride, because it's not And the third section there says it so beautifully. This faith is is different in degrees, weak or strong, maybe often and in many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ who is both the author and finisher of our faith. I don't know where all of you are at right now in your Christian life, You may feel assailed and weakened right now. And newsflash, that's okay. That's normal. It's a normal part of the Christian life. But what does it say? We don't just feel weak and assailed and just say, well, that's just my lot, right? It's going to just be hard every day and I can't ever have joy in my Christian life. It says saving faith gets the victory And it grows up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and the finisher of our faith. Why am I sharing all of this, all these things from the confession? It's not just words written on a page by a bunch of dead guys. 
It's a reminder and encouragement that we all need as we prepare to come to the table this morning. That our faith will get the victory. Not because we're awesome, but because Jesus is. It's not because we can do it on our own, but because he has already done it for us. This table is for all of those who accept and receive and rest upon Christ alone for their salvation. Whether your faith is weak or strong, whether your faith is one week old or 70 years old, this table is for sinners who know that they are saved by grace and by grace alone. So I invite you to come. I invite you to be fed and to be nourished by the one who said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's a little teaser for you from John chapter 6 for next week. As we prepare to come to the table, I want to read this prayer from the Valley of Vision, simply called the Lord's Supper. I want us to take some time to, to listen, to reflect, and to prepare our hearts as we come to eat and to drink and to taste and see that the Lord is good. God of all good, I bless thee for the means of grace. Teach me to see in them thy loving purposes and the joy and strength of my soul. Thou hast prepared for me a feast, and though I am unworthy to sit down as guest, I wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness. When I hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate but must come to thee in love. By thy spirit, enliven my faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior. While I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death, may I ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may I rightly grasp the breadth and length of this design. Draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink. Testify before all men that I do for myself gladly, in faith, reverence, and love, receive my Lord to be my life, strength, nourishment, joy, delight. In the supper, I remember his eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may thy indwelling spirit invigorate my soul until that day when I hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast.